Okay, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. The final kingdom of God. The final kingdom of God. Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, days are coming when you will desire to see one of the, one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them, for as a lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, this time that we can look at your word. We pray that you would speak to us and uh, through your word change our hearts through the power of uh, the Holy Spirit working through the word of God. Change our hearts to be soft and fertile soil that will respond to your word in faith and obedience. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. So Jesus here is teaching on the kingdom of God in this passage. And um, Jesus is often taught about the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees and even the disciples fail to understand it. And uh, we saw that even on Easter Sunday, that even after his death and resurrection, his disciples did not understand, even at that point, that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And uh, so this is one of those occasions where Jesus taught the kingdom of God and he's putting these pieces into the disciples' minds, these pieces that would eventually come together for them so that they'll understand the nature of the kingdom of God. Well, one of our boys right now is doing a thousand-piece Star Wars puzzle. And uh, in our family... You know that the kids are bored when they pull out the puzzle. Like there's a, a lot of things that um, they would prefer to do, but then, you know, they have limits in terms of how much they can be on, on their electronics and so on. So it's kind of like one of the last resorts for recreation. And so, you know, building this puzzle. 
when you open a puzzle box, what do you do? What's the, the steps in making a puzzle? First, you pick out the corner pieces. Like you, you lay it all out, and at first you have no idea where these pieces go, and so you try to be strategic and you pick out the corner pieces and then the edges and so on, and you build from there. And I think that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He opens the kingdom of God puzzle box, and the Pharisees, his disciples, have no idea about the kingdom of God, what it's like, when it's coming, and so on. And so Jesus pulls out these few crucial pieces and begins to build up a framework so that they'll understand what the kingdom of God is like. And that's what we'll see through this passage, kind of going along the same theme of what we've been talking about in, in previous weeks. Um, let me also mention here that if you notice, and I'm sure you'll, some of you will bring it up in Smuggle Bible Study, is that notice in this passage that there's no verse 36, uh, in the ESV anyway, and uh, just don't want you to be bothered by that. Uh, there's no verse 36 in the ESV because that uh, verse was um, not present in many of the original manuscripts, and so um, that's why it's like that but you're not really missing out on anything because 36 basically says something that 35 says, and uh, it is a biblical thing that 30, verse 36 says, and so don't, don't worry about that. Just wanted to put that out there so you're not bothered by it in small group. Okay, so first, so what is the kingdom of God like? First, the spiritual nature of the kingdom. The spiritual nature of the kingdom. Um, Verse 20 again says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that, that can be observed. Nor will, will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus here is responding to a question asked by the Pharisees, when is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus basically says that the nature of the kingdom of God is different than you think. The kingdom of God is not a place like other earthly kingdoms. It's not something that you can see with your eyes. Rather, the kingdom of God is something you experience in your heart. The kingdom of God essentially is the realm in which the king rules. So while the Pharisees await a visible kingdom a visible kingdom that's, that's established by a conquering and victorious king, Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is already here in your midst because Jesus the king is here, ready to rule in the hearts of his people. The king has already arrived. He has already begun establishing the kingdom of God in the hearts of his people. So this is one of the pieces of the kingdom of God puzzle that Jesus points out. The kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that is established as the king reigns in our hearts. It's interesting here that the kingdom of God that Jesus brought had nothing to do with the existing Roman government. The, the Romans ruled at this time. The kingdom of God had nothing to do with the, with the existing Roman government. Jesus did not have to overthrow the Roman rule to establish his kingdom because the nature of the kingdom of God was different. The nature was different than earthly kingdoms. 
Now that fact is no less true today. The kingdom of God that, that we believe in, that, that we're trying to build, that we're, we're, we're citizens of, the kingdom of God is not tied, not tied to governments or political parties, ruling officials, and so on. The kingdom of God will grow independent of government. So that should be encouraging to us because that means we don't have to place our hope in government. That means our main priority to change this world, our main priority does not have to be in government reforms. I mean, think about it. Some of the places in this world today where the kingdom of God is growing and flourishing the most are places where the government may be crooked, where the government is lacking in many ways. The kingdom of God can grow the most, even in the, in the poorest of nations, where the, where the government might exist to, to take advantage of the people. Because the kingdom of God is not tied to government, it's independent of government. This also means that I should be more concerned about living according to the, to, to the rule of the king rather than worrying about kings and politicians in this world and what they're doing in this world around me. Because the kingdom of God is invisible and the call of the citizens of the kingdom is to make the invisible kingdom visible to others. And how do we do that? By living in a way that reflects the rule of the king. So applying that to myself, I ask this question. Is God today, is God more concerned that, you know, like different people are saying different things about the coronavirus situation related to politics? Okay, so now is God more concerned that uh, the existing administration or this party or that party, is God more concerned that they're using the coronavirus crisis in our nation for political gain? Is God more concerned about that? Or is God more concerned that, that I got angry at my kids this week unjustly? What is God more concerned with? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Like, what is God more concerned with? But what I do know is that what I'm, what I'm supposed to be more concerned with is that I got angry with my kids this, more, this, this week. Because what's out there is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in here. This is where God's law is supposed to be obeyed. This is where God is supposed to reign. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. And if the call of kingdom citizens is to make the invisible kingdom of God known and visible to this world, then our priority has to be living according to the rule of the king in our lives. So first, the spiritual nature of the kingdom. Secondly, the day of the Son of Man will be preceded by suffering. The day of the Son of Man will be preceded by suffering. Now, Jesus 
you know, first talked to the Pharisees, now he turns to the disciples and teaches them about the kingdom of God because they also lacked understanding about the kingdom as well. Again, verse 22, he said to his disciples, days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. The term Son of Man goes back to the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, referring to the Messiah, to the Christ, who will ultimately come to claim dominion over his kingdom. But in that context, before he comes, there will be terrible days of persecution and suffering. So as Jesus refers to the Son of Man, he's saying here that a time of terrible suffering is coming, and that, you know, he says that in the other Gospels as well, more explicitly. Times of terrible suffering is coming, and in those days, the suffering and persecution will be so terrible that you will long to see the Son of Man coming. So, um, as you, so the context is, as you long for relief and deliverance in that, in that time of great persecution, it says many false messiahs will come claiming to be him. So Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Because that day when the Son of Man comes, it will be unmistakable. Everyone will know, just as a lightning flashes and lights up the sky, everyone will know because his second coming will be different than his first coming. The Son of Man first came as a suffering servant. His second coming will be as a conquering king, and his coming will be unmistakable. And then he says in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So oddly here now, he draws their attention to the present. He says, first things first. This, uh, the suffering of the Son of Man presently and the rejection of the Son of Man will come first. This is the prerequisite to the deliverance that Jesus will bring in the end. The coming of the Son of Man as a conquering king will not be possible unless he first suffers and dies as a servant on the cross. So the road to salvation was marked by suffering and rejection for Jesus, and it will be the same for his disciples. The promise of deliverance by the Son of Man will be preceded by persecution and suffering for his disciples. You know, I was thinking, um, what if this coronavirus situation doesn't go away? I mean, think about that for a second. Just Imagine, what if it doesn't go away? I mean, like, we're all waiting for things to get better and things to change so that we can have picnics and we can go to movies and we can hang out with our friends. Like, we're all waiting for things to become like that. But what if that day doesn't come? I just recently read that there's so much still that scientists don't know about this 
this virus. And there's data from other parts of the world, uh, other countries that dealt with this before we did here in the States. There's data coming that people who have been infected and then tested negative are again testing positive. Okay, so again, so there are a lot of different things about this virus that we don't know. And we still don't know the, the direction and what's going to happen. So hypothetically, I mean, just think about it. Imagine it. What if Bill Gates was right, right? Like something like this eventually leads to like half the population being wiped out. And then like this or something like this is the beginning of the end and life never returns the way it was. Kind of saying this with a smile so that we don't get depressed. But what if that actually happened? Right? Like stuff that we see in The Walking Dead becomes reality. People are like killing each other. Right? Like the most precious commodity are like bullets. You know, because you're trying to like save yourself and your loved ones. And on top of that, not only that, on top of that, Christians are persecuted like at no other time in history. Uh, and I think like what, what this text is asking us is, are you ready for that? Are you ready? And, and, and of course, like, you can argue like nobody would be ready for that. I mean, how can anyone be ready for that? But this is a question that we're supposed to ask ourselves. Um, are you ready for that? No, probably. But in your mentality as a follower of Jesus Christ, in the mindset that we have, as someone who claims to follow Jesus Christ, am I ready for something like that? A, a persecution and suffering that the Bible promises because, Jesus says, suffering will, will precede the day of the Son of Man. This is the second piece of the puzzle that Jesus picks out for the disciples. The day of the Son of Man will be preceded by suffering. And that leads us to the third point. Do not be caught unprepared. Do not be caught unprepared. And then Jesus gives two examples of what life will be like when he returns. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. The people in the days of Noah were not prepared for the flood. They were eating, drinking, and enjoying life. They were, they were shopping, right? They were shopping for wedding dresses, booking wedding venues. And then a great flood came unexpectedly and like a thief in the night, destroyed them all. And it says, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. And then it gives a second example. Likewise, in verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot. Again, they were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven, destroyed them all so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So again, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were not prepared for the judgment of God. 
The people were, again, eating and drinking, enjoying life. The toilet paper section was well stocked at Costco in Sodom because it was life as usual. But in that same day, while people were enjoying life, again, like a thief in the night, unexpected, fire and sulfur rained from heaven. And in both of these situations, right, in the days of Lot and the days of Noah, the people were destroyed as God's judgment against sin came upon them. Now, we saw this, uh, Paul's interpretation, Apostle Paul's interpretation, we saw this a few weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, when he says, the day, of the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there's peace and security. That's exactly the situation, right? Days of Lot and days of Noah. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. The people in the days of Noah and Lot were living in sin, but they felt peace and security. They were living in sin before God, but what they felt, right, what they were, just how they, how they felt about life was peace and security. There were things in this world that made them feel peace and security. So, a big part of what Jesus is saying here, a big part of being prepared for the day of the Son of Man or, or not being prepared is our relationship to the world. If we're digging our roots into this world and loving this world, then we're not ready for the next world. That's exactly what Jesus says next, right? In verse 31, on that day, let the one who is in the, the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So Jesus says, on that day. So maybe that's, that's the day where, where, where persecution comes for Christians. Or maybe he's talking about when Jesus actually returns. On that day, don't go back to get your stuff in your house. Right? Now, this isn't talking about like how if your house is burning, you rush back to get your kids out of the house. It's not like that. What would cause someone to go on that day and grab their goods from the house? I would go back to the house if those goods are things that I don't want to live without. If it's something that you want to take with you to the next world. So Jesus is saying, on that day, your love for this world will be revealed. How you prepare, right? Like, or, or how prepared you are for the coming of the kingdom of God will depend on your attitude in your heart toward this world right now. If you love this world, if you find your peace and security in this world, then you won't long for the next world. The Puritan theologian Richard Baxter said, there's a big difference between the desires of heaven in a believer and an unbeliever. There's a big difference between how a believer and an unbeliever desires heaven. It says this, the believer 
prizes heaven above this world. The unbeliever prizes heaven only over hell. Okay, so, so he's saying, of course, like given the choice, of course everyone would choose heaven over hell. I mean, who in their right minds would want to be in hell for, forever, right? Of course everyone would choose heaven over hell. But the people who choose heaven over hell, many of those people would not choose heaven over this world because their love for this world is too strong. You see, it's only those who choose heaven over this world that will actually make it there because that reveals true faith in Jesus Christ. And we see an example of that in Lot's wife. She turned back, even after being warned not to, she turned back because she loved what was in Sodom. So, so do not be unprepared means check your heart. Examine what you love in your heart. Repent of my love for past sins. Repent of my love for this world and prepared, prepare yourself for that day. In verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So when that day comes, there will be no salvation by association. At that point, it won't matter if you did Bible study because your husband or, or wife made you do it. It won't matter if your dad was a pastor or missionary or elder. Everyone will be on their own. Everyone will be judged for their own faith. And as, as an example, Lot made it Lot's wife did not make it. So since this great separation is coming, and since this great separation that is coming is a reality, Jesus is saying, examine your heart. Examine your love for the world. Examine what you truly love and long for in your heart. And prepare for this great separation that's coming. Verse 37, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We're not exactly sure what the disciples are asking here when they say, where, Lord? But in any case, Jesus points to the, to the certainty of what he just taught them. The certainty. You know that a corpse is there when you see the vultures. So the Son of Man will return, and this great separation will be revealed wherever there is spiritual life and spiritual death. So those are some of the pieces that Jesus lays out for what the kingdom of God is like so that he can prepare his disciples for the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I was thinking about this text in this way. Um, and maybe you can relate to this. How am I supposed to feel after reading a text like this? Or, you know, hearing a sermon like this. How am I supposed to feel? Because different parts of the Bible 
it seems like different parts of the Bible give me different views on salvation, right? If I read some parts of the Bible, it makes it seem like getting to heaven is easy. God loves you. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. He did it for your sins. He accomplished it all. So just trust him. And then your place in the book of life is secure. You'll go to heaven. It seems like, oh, getting to heaven is so easy. But then reading some other parts of the Bible makes it seem like getting to heaven is hard. Don't love the world. If you love the world, you won't make it to heaven. So how am I supposed to feel after reading this text? I think that, um, that those kind of like different things, like I think that exists because there's a tension there in the gospel that's supposed to be there. On one hand, it teaches us the foolishness of self-dependence because salvation is only by grace through faith. So it'd be foolish to try to do this and that and try to earn merit before God and things like that. On the other hand, it shows us the foolishness of taking grace for granted because true faith is manifested through works. So the the tension is supposed to exist together and, and I'm supposed to feel that tension in my heart. So how do we resolve this, even after looking at a text like this that tells us that we cannot love this world? I think that's what um, Jesus means theologically when he says in verse 25, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He says, first things first. Before the Son of Man comes, And the day of the Lord is reality. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected and die on the cross for the sins of many to purchase salvation. Because that is something that you cannot do yourself. This world. I look back, just like Lot's wife did, the things of this world, the sins in my heart that I love, were just like the Pharisees who wanted a kingdom that would serve them, that would make their lives better, not harder. So how am I supposed to process this? I have to first understand that Jesus Jesus suffered and died on the cross for my sins. Now trusting in Jesus now gives me the power to be changed and transformed in my own heart to desire heaven over this world. And I would say, just as a final application, that's why I'm really encouraging and trying to challenge and, and um, you know, uh, challenge us and challenge myself to be in the word and to be in prayer. That's why we're trying to have a you know, Wednesday night prayer meeting and morning prayer every every morning because how do how do these graces of God that he has for me become reality in my heart as I remain in his word as I wrestle with my heart in prayer as I go to him 
and receive his strength and receive the benefits of his death and resurrection by faith. Slowly but surely, my heart's affections can change and I can learn to love and desire heaven over this world. We pray that we would receive this word into our hearts and uh, prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord. Let's pray together. And uh, uh, Just one thought I've been kind of sharing with uh, maybe at prayer meetings and things like that we've been having is um, uh, initially when virtual church started, I was like really reluctant because I felt like um, church is going to get worse, right? Like people, spiritual life is going to get worse. Like we're not going to be together. We're not going to... Um, be able to encourage one another, not going to be able to hold each other accountable. And so people's spiritual lives can get worse. Therefore, church is going to get worse. And I was reluctant in that way. Um, going through it, having gone through it and just um, being in the midst of it, I think my perspective on it kind of changed because, you know, we see over and over again in the Bible what God tends to do through challenges and hardships is that real faith tends to rise. Um, and so I think that's what's really going to happen um, individually in our hearts, right? As we're faith with, faced with challenges, um, it'll cause us to depend on God more and real faith will rise and help us to grow in our spiritual lives. And also, I think that'll happen not only in our church, but also in the church of Jesus Christ. Um, where a lot of the excesses and things that really don't matter will be stripped away, and the church will become like what it's supposed to be. Um, something that, you know, uh, not just an institution, a gathering of people, socializing, things like that, but true worshipers that, that love God and want to glorify God, live for God, and be prepared for His coming, go through anything in this life. Like that kind of faith will rise and the church I think will become stronger and, and uh, that's one of the convictions um, that I feel like God is placing in my heart even even for our church and so so even uh, whenever it might be that we gather together I feel like um, uh, it'll be a different stage where um, uh, our church will be better because of it and so just kind of praying and preparing for that. So uh, I want to encourage you to, at this time, like these days, to really be, um, like if you're going to be jealous of anything, like I have to have that, I want that, uh, be jealous of your relationship with God, making that real and personal and deep and authentic. Um, and for that reason, be in his word. Um, uh, you know, pray, join us for morning prayer. Um, it's never supposed to be easy. Like this whole process is never supposed to be easy. Like no, nowhere in the Bible does it guarantee that it's easy. It's, it's not supposed to be easy. It's actually supposed to be hard. But through that difficult process, um, faith will arise and faith will be purified. So I want to encourage us to continue to fight for that. Let's pray together. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your great love for us, and uh, uh, out of your great love, um, you give us uh, warnings and rebukes, and uh, your word challenges even the, the naturally sinful direction of our hearts, and uh, uh, even these days, how we gravitate toward comfort and uh, the pleasures of this world past sins and all of those things, and uh, how you're calling us to something better um, because you want to give us yourself. So we pray that you would uh, empower uh, your word in its effectiveness in our hearts as we receive your word by faith and as we repent and as we struggle with it. We pray that you would provide a power that we cannot have. Uh, by ourselves because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us to cling on to the cross and uh, through dependence on you, overcome ourselves and learn to love Christ more. Be with your people as we live in these days, trying to make the invisible kingdom visible and awaiting the day of the Lord. Help us to live in faithfulness to you. Um, we ask in Jesus' name. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unchanging covenant love of the Father God and the fellowship and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen. <laughs>